Welcome to the podcast. I am Joe Posnanski, and uh, it's a it's a, an exciting podcast this week. We've got uh, a little later on. I have an interview with uh, Hall of Fame photographer Andrew Bernstein. Uh, we're trying something new where I'm going to do uh, little interviews that it might never happen again, but but we're we're going to do it this week. So so that's uh, coming up. But uh, special guest host this week. Super excited. My dear friend, uh, Anthony Castrovins from MLB. Anthony, welcome. Uh, thank you, John. I'm, I'm both excited and I have to say a little relieved to be here with you today. Why are you relieved? I, I'd, like to, I'd well, like to know. Because I was, I was thinking about this uh, when uh, Marissa asked me to be on. Was, I think you had me on a couple of years ago at this point. And uh, I remember that there was no podcast for like several months thereafter. And I'm a big podcast <laughs> listener. So I thought, did, is it me? Did I ruin the show? Is it gone for good now? Because I broke the system. So um, I'm glad you're back. I'm glad I'm back. Well, the good thing is, as a regular listener of the podcast, you know that this show disappears at any time. It <laughs> just, true. there's there's absolutely no rhyme or reason. I, you know, I can't, in fact, I can't believe. So so when uh, when we became a part of The Athletic, uh, which, by the way, as, as part of the athletic, as a regular listener, do you get to hear that creepy little uh, chime? Yes. Yeah, it's it's bad, right? It's 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 not it's 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 not my place to say, but it is on every athletic podcast podcast, I should say. So yeah. uh, I, I guess there's a consistency no, it, in that standpoint. It's a consistency. Yeah, it does, uh, it's it, weird. It, it does give you a, a sense, of, an ominous sense of, it's, of something coming that might not be good. It's ominous. It's ominous. It's ominous feel. It should. I mean, it should always be followed. Why you know this is the murder podcast? <laughs> like right? Like it should. It seems. It seems odd. But anyway, ever since then, uh, uh, we have been on weekly, uh, which I promised. Well, I didn't have to promise. I just never ever was going to be on weekly. Uh, and and basically, it's all because of producer. Uh, uh, our producer Marissa Morris, who who Marissa uh, essentially every week she sends me a note like, "Hey, we got to do another one." I'm like, "Oh, really? Like <laughs> again, again?" So, but it's always worth it when we can have somebody uh, as awesome as you are, Anthony. So we're going to talk uh, a lot of baseball. We're also going to get in a little Bruce uh, Springsteen, uh, and and that this is going to give me an opportunity to uh, rip Michael uh, Shore, who who last week. Uh, we we drafted uh, rock stars, and yeah. uh, and it didn't go well for oh, for. I mean, well, it went well for me. I thought <laughs> it, it didn't go well for Jason Kander, our guest. Uh, although Jason is is holding tight to his uh, his belief that uh, drafting Kenny Loggins was worthwhile. Um, but but the thing that bothered me about it was because Mike is is sort of a. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I wouldn't call him fully anti-Bruce, but he's but he's certainly not a Bruce Springsteen fan at all, and and does not mind taking his his Springsteen shots. Because of that, uh, you know, he he was able to sit there and brag about having uh, having chosen the greatest rock stars in in history. When, I mean, let's face it, if if it had been a normal podcast, Bruce Springsteen would have been the first pick overall. So I, I just. Uh, this will be a perfect opportunity. I, I, it's good to be, I'll be preaching to the choir about this and, and it'll work out well. So, yeah, I mean, I was, as I said, I was concerned a couple of years ago that I had ruined uh, the podcast. And uh, I have to say that draft, uh, it set the league back. The league is in, <laughs> in serious jeopardy after that particular draft because yeah. uh, 
I, I think your team turned out pretty well, Joe, I have to say. But, uh, yeah, there, there were some interesting choices. There, there was some – There was some. yeah, Jason Jason Kander brought in – look, he brought he brought the, exactly what the podcast is looking for, which is meaninglessness and nonsense. <laughs> and and so so in that way, he he served the greater good, but, uh, but at a cost. I mean, at a cost to his personal pride. So – but let's talk a little baseball because we are closing in amazingly on the playoffs. And and – it's amazing on several fronts. It's amazing uh, based on the fact that it, it, you know, the season just started. And, and so that's really weird to, to be, you know, going into the playoffs after so few games, that's weird. Uh, it looked for a long time, like there was not going to be a playoff because it didn't look like we, the baseball was going to be able to, to sort of keep anybody healthy enough to, to have a playoffs. It's been a very, very weird season, but I, I'll start by just asking you this. Where do you stand? Where are you right now? How do you feel about uh, going into the playoffs? Are you excited? How has this season felt to you? It, it's all been, you know, any baseball on my television has been a good thing. Uh, sure. I, 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 I'm old enough to remember what it was like in uh, April and May <laughs> and June, all those many moons ago. And, you know, there were a lot of challenges to even getting to the point of starting the season. There were labor challenges beyond uh, the COVID challenges. Uh, I, I have many you know, texts from people inside baseball who even when they came to an agreement, they, they all seem to come to the same conclusion that we'll be lucky to get 10 games in yep. uh, before a shutdown. And I heard from for a minute too. there, it was it was looking like that with the Marlins outbreak and the Cardinals subsequent outbreak. And then uh, the last, you know, three to four weeks, knock on wood, it's been fantastic in terms of the testing numbers. And uh, I think it's reflective of something that had been said kind of internally at MLB, which is ultimately that, not that this is not a bubble like the NBA and the NHL, but ultimately players are probably safer in the protective nest of, of baseball than they would be in the general population right now in terms of just being tested frequently. And uh, if people adhere to protocols, which is of course uh, a difficult thing. And uh, we, we saw some difficulty with that, especially early, but uh, they've just about made it to the finish line as we record this. And it's, that's fantastic. And I, I find myself just in, intrigued and excited by you know, a, a very, this is, this season is the definition of unique and this, this playoffs with the 16 teams and the, uh, the wild card series round where every team is subjected to that best of three. I mean, that's, that's fun. We're going to have eight postseason games next Wednesday. Yeah. So uh, that's insane. And this whole thing will be kind of a wild trip and you just take it for what it is. It's, it's a singular experience. It's um, I don't cheapen the, you know, the accomplishment of whoever wins the World Series. I, I think a lot of people inside baseball look at it that way, you know, knowing everything that it took to get to this point and uh, to keep a team, you know, reasonably healthy and on the field and all that. Um, it's an achievement to win the World Series this year. I know everyone and on the outside uh, will, will put an asterisk next to it mentally. And that's fine. I get it because it is shortened season. But, um, you know, the randomness of the postseason will be something really interesting to watch. And, and I think, uh, you know, if we're fortunate enough to get to that point where someone is hoisting a trophy, I really think they will have earned it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Look, I'm excited. I mean, I, you know, I've, I'm on record saying that, that taking this kind of 16 team randomness into a real baseball season, uh, I wouldn't like that at all. And, and I know that there are those at least uh, floating that trial balloon and, and we can talk about that later, but when it comes to 2020 and, and the weirdness of everything and, and, you know, the difficulty of everything, 
you know, I, I think two things. I think one, I think this is fantastic. I would have, I would have been fine if they'd said all 30 teams are in the playoffs. I mean, I would have, to me, they, they had a blank canvas to work with, you know, based on the fact that they're, you know, this is, nobody knows what's going on. I mean, it's so strange and we're all dealing with so many, you know, so many weird things in our own lives. I, I got to feel like um, this playoffs is going to be great. So I'm, I'm very excited about that. And I'm equally excited, I have to say, um, about who, whoever's going to come out of this thing as champion. I, I, of course, it's going to be, I don't know if it's going to be an asterisk. That's, that's, that's an interesting sort of uh, differentiator that I have in my mind. Everybody's going to remember that this was 2020 and it was a weird year. Everybody's going to, you know, much in the same way, if you, if you think about it, I mean, 81 World Series was also, you know, there should be an asterisk next to, to next to the champion and, you know, because of the strike and everything else and, and so many other things that went on. So I think everybody's going to remember this being a very strange year. But as far as, you know, everybody's playing by the same rules. Uh, for the first time, it really is going to come down to can you win a best of three? Can you win a best of five? Can you win two best of sevens? I mean, this is – everybody understands going in what this is and and what this is about. And I think that it's a very legitimate system uh, considering the constraints of the year. And I think whoever's champion is champion. I mean, that's – you know, they get the rings and they get the – you know, they get to be put into the – into the record books. I, I, I really have no qualms with that at all. Yeah. And you think, I mean, off the field, they, they have to bubble up for, you know, this week uh, leading into the playoffs. Um, they are, they remain in that bubble amongst themselves uh, right. throughout October if they get that far. And uh, so talk about, a, <laughs> I mean, this is the ultimate team building exercise where, um, and we saw an instance in Cleveland where, you know, two pitchers violated protocol and, and the consternation that caused within their clubhouse where, um, you know, the, the old cliche about pulling on the same rope has, it, it's never applied more than it has in this baseball season. It's even a step above, you know, the aforementioned NBA and NHL bubbles because there it, it's kind of hard to violate protocol here. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, all the temptations of the road are there. Uh, all the things that, that can trip up a year are, are there right in front of you should you partake. And, uh, and and we saw some difficult situations there with the Marlins and Cardinals. And, uh, you know, so again, here we are. And I, I think the Marlins are the team of the year, Joe. I, I don't and <laughs> They're probably not going to win the World Series, but to me they are the team of the year because no team illustrates 2020 baseball quite like the Miami Marlins where – uh, 130 roster moves in the first six weeks of the season. Uh, they've used 61 players. Uh, that's just six shy of a record. And that's this crazy. is only a 60 game season. They had yes. to play 28 games. They will have played 28 games in 24 days to close the year uh, by the conclusion of the regular season. And they're still, as we record this, they're still in a playoff spot, uh, not just by the, the you know, the uh, eight team NL playoff structure, but by the old structure as well, they right. would be in the playoffs right now. So um you know, great, uh, great moments in uh, adjusting on the fly. They always say baseball is a game of adjustments. Never more true than in 2020 and never more true than with the 2020 Marlins. Yeah, the Marlins are like that anyway. I mean, they're just such a weird, <laughs> like they'll just, you know, to me, the Marlins just pop up every so often. They're like, ah, they're terrible. They're terrible. They're terrible. And there's no fans. And and then like, oh, we win the World Series. Look at that. We just won another World Series. That's, that's great. And it's just very, they seem very odd. And this year, 
it really would be fitting for that team to go ahead and like go deep in the playoffs and, and get to the world series. It just, it just feels, it won't happen. I don't, I don't think it's going to happen, but, but it's, it feels like that's right. But you mentioned something earlier. I want to talk about some individual teams, but you mentioned something earlier about Cleveland and, and the, the two uh, pitchers who, who, who really broke protocol, you know, if I had to say there, there was sort of one like lasting thing that happened during this season, because again, in a lot of ways, this, this is very much, I think in the fans, in, in the minds of a lot of fans in the minds of probably quite a few people around baseball, from what I'm hearing, this is really an etch-a-sketch season, no matter what. I mean, even though I believe that the, the winner is going to be very legitimate, everybody's going to, you're just shaking the etch-a-sketch and next year it's, it's, it's a brand new game, right? I mean, you, you know, nobody's, I don't know what, you know, what they're going to take from 2020, maybe some of the rules, maybe some of this, but I mean, it's, it is a season all to its own. And yet, you know, Cleveland uh, traded, you know, a really, really good pitcher in Mike Clevenger shortly after uh, that whole, uh, uh, however you want to describe the incident. And, and I don't know if they felt like they had to because of because of the clubhouse and 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 the, a betrayal of trust and everything else. But it's it's very interesting because you know at least in the early going, it doesn't look like Cleveland's going to have gotten a great uh, you know return on Clevenger. And Clevenger is is terrific. And and you know who knows Clevenger could win the Cy Young next year for the Padres or whatever. And Cleveland fans will you know look back and, and, and be upset, you know, as, as everybody is about bad deals. And yet that feels like an, an, a, an absolute pandemic trade, right? Yes. I mean, it feels, it feels like that's the only reason they made that trade. I agree. Um, obviously you know, his name came up in, in trade rumors last winter. I don't think they were sure. serious about moving him at that point. And then, you know, the incident happens where, where he and, and Zach Plesak uh, break protocol. And then Clevenger's was even a step beyond because... Because he didn't exactly... Wasn't exactly <laughs> super honest about it, is what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, they, they caught Plesak, basically. And then they have a team meeting uh, to talk about the situation. And Clevenger stands up and defends Plesak, all the while knowing that he was out with Plesak. <laughs> <laughs> no one else knew that. And then that comes out the following day after he had flown home with the team. And, um, you know, the incubation period, period being what it was, that, that was probably not uh, as, as big of a threat, uh, you know, as it could have been, but still, um, still pretty bad luck uh, for yeah. Mike Clevenger. By the way, I just want to add that incubation period is by far the grossest term of, yeah, uh, of 2020, and it's, it's been everywhere. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, so, you know, he, they, they basically voted those guys off the island, you know, it was Survivor. Yeah. They, they, they had another team meeting a few days later and, and decided we want to move forward without you guys. So they get banished to the alternate site in East Lake, Ohio, uh, near my hometown, and uh, you know that's not where you want to spend your summer as a big leaguer. So they were. It really they're isn't. It really their isn't. time there for a week and a half, and then the <laughs> trade happens. And it's easy to draw the line between the, the breach of protocol and the trade. I think the, the the stronger line is just you know Clevenger's in his arbitration years, and I think we're going to see a real financial crunch in baseball this winter related to the pandemic and the shortening of the season and no fans and and I, I think they just thought that his value was higher now than it will be then. But is that uh, true though? I mean, is, we'll I mean, see, like, you know? it feels we'll like, see. it feels like his value after the, the break of protocol was at its lowest point. I mean, it's like, Oh, they're, they're going to have to deal him. They, 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 they don't even want him. The, the, nobody wants him on the team anymore. I don't well, know. They, they I mean, brought him back right before the trade right. line to disprove that, that potential theory. But <laughs> but, I mean, you might have a point. It's just, you know, for me, it's just, uh, I think it's a brutal trade, to be honest, because even if 
even if it works out in the long run uh, with the prospects they got. It was definitely a, more of a prospect-oriented deal. Uh, Gabriel Arias, Joey Cantillo, uh, and Owen Miller. I mean, Cantillo and Arias are 20 years old. So right, they're really just kids, yeah. Essentially built around them. And it'll be a long time as a result, you know, to, to be able to adequately judge the trade. But still, I mean, it's an opportunity to win a World Series in Cleveland. Right. And uh, as, as he is an arbitration, but it's still not, you know, a tremendously expensive arbitration. He can legitimately be one of the best pitchers in baseball. He's been that, you know, when healthy in the last several years. So, uh, you know, the, the major league portion of that deal, Austin Hedges, you know, Cal Quantrill, Josh Naylor is – you know, shown to not be the guy in the outfield. So it's just a frustrating deal if you're a Cleveland fan, because uh, it it didn't move the needle. If anything, it put them back here in 2020. And I would say it demonstrably put them back because then as deep as their pitching staff still is without Clevenger, uh, it needs to be all the more deep in this 2020 format. There's no off days in the first three rounds of this postseason. There's no off days within a round until the world series. So I think if you could inject truth serum or, tequila or whatever it takes to get the truth out of those guys in the in the Cleveland front office I'd be very curious to see what they would have to say about that because that wasn't decided and announced until after the trade deadline so you know is Clevenger still with Cleveland if if you knew that going in to where um you know that depth is going to be counted on all the more in in that postseason so yeah I I mean there's so many mysteries to me around that whole deal including whether or not players basically said we really we weren't joking. We really do want to move on without them. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's so, you know, but, but it also leads to one other element of this thing. And it's something we've talked about here on the podcast before. And that is because this is such a weird season, it it doesn't feel like everybody, I mean, it feels like the Padres sort of took an aggressive stance that other teams did not take. I mean, like the Blue Jays, I think did, there were a couple of teams that were like, hey, this is a real season. We're going to try to win it all. And I think a whole lot of other teams, most other teams, did not take that same approach. And I I, I use as the example for that Lance Lynn. I, I just – here's Lance Lynn in Texas, one of the best pitchers in baseball. You're 100% right. Everybody's going to need four and five starters, or, or, or they're going to have to go with bullpen games uh, to go through these playoffs. Lance Lynn is worth his weight in gold in this environment. I mean, he, you know, and I, I realized that when the trade deadline happened, people didn't know that, but they could have predicted it, right? I mean, you're going to try to figure out a way to get 16 teams, uh, you know, uh, going through October. So you could have predicted it. The Rangers, I think, were, you know, I, I don't know at the end of the day, like whether they were unrealistic and what they thought they were going to get back, but they were active you know, sellers. I mean, they, they, you know, that's a, that's a team that is basically has to start over. They're terrible. And, and they've, they've got to build to the future. And Lance Lynn is, is the guy you trade in that environment. And for whatever reason, Lance Lynn is still on the Rangers and, and he's, he's got another year on his deal at $8 million, which is, which is, you know, at least in the old world of baseball, uh, uh, you know, an absolute steal for a guy as good as Lance Lynn I don't know. I mean, what did you make of Lance Lynn not getting dealt before the before the the trade deadline? It was the biggest surprise of the trade deadline, um, you know, for all the reasons you just said. And that's another one where I just I wonder if it had definitively been known at that moment, um, you know, the lack of off days in in the best of five uh, division series and, and best of seven uh, 
league championship series if Lance Lynn is still on the Rangers, if there had been yeah. more of a market for him, more of an aggressive market, I should say. Um, you know, impossible to know, but uh, it it also speaks to, I think what we saw in general with this trade line, you kind of touched on it with, you know, Padres and Blue Jays. You saw teams with a rare opportunity for their particular situation where they had a long playoff drought and here's a chance to get in and, and take that next step. And then the teams that, you know, are typically in the mix, the Yankees and Dodgers of the world, you know, they kind of held back. Even the Braves you had a, a glaring need in the rotation and they got Tommy Malone, you know, yeah. so it's yeah. like, uh, you know, so it was just the teams that were aggressive were the teams that haven't really been in the mix for a while. I think that's generally what you saw. The Reds are another example where they made some moves. So, um, so yeah, that, that was kind of the summation of the trade deadline for me. But again, I, I keep coming back to the idea because it's fascinating to me to be making such high level decisions at the trade deadline and not knowing the October format. <laughs> right. Um, that's, that's really, uh, it's that's, very strange. That's one of a kind right there. Uh, I am totally one of a kind things. Well, and I've said that I don't, you know, I, I don't think that there's going to be a lot from this season necessarily that's going to move forward, but I am all for that. I'm all for at the trade deadline, nobody knowing how the playoffs are going to be played. <laughs> it, it just, and it could be anything. Like literally you're at the playoffs and then suddenly it's going to be like, uh, actually we're going to make uh, all of the fields uh, 800 feet to center field like just completely change the dimensions of the ballpark change the rules just like so that so that you're completely uh you know sort of the way they used to do like on uh like on uh you know various uh various reality television shows where like nobody knows what contest is coming next and it's like okay you you have no idea what what it's going to take to survive uh I would have loved that. I would love for baseball to just do that every year. They're not a going literal, to. Uh, a literal moving of the goalpost. Yes, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's like, oh, you know what? We're going to, uh, this year, everybody's going to make the playoffs and it's going to be a one game playoff for every team. <laughs> like just some, whatever it is, it'd be just, it'd be really, really fun. Well, I hate to uh, say it, but we're, we're kind of seeing that in other elements of society currently where the rules are, are constantly being <laughs> adjusted. On shifting the all the time. It, it is constantly uh, shifting on us, you know, when, when you look at, at let's, let's talk a little bit about, uh, let's start with the American league. Uh, and the thing that I find super interesting about the American league, first of all, I think there, there's, I think it's pretty exciting, uh, that the white Sox have, have, uh, you know, put themselves in a position where that, that team, you know, obviously it's everything we're about to say, every single thing that we're going to say over the next, however many minutes we talk about these teams, is is you know buffeted by the the basic you know small mark uh small sample size so you know i mean obviously the the white Sox could start a year 34 and 20 and still lose 95 games i mean in, in a real season but we're not gonna we're not gonna make that uh that uh you know little side note on every single thing we're gonna do so we're just there's one overriding side note here that we all know that this is a weird season and there have not been that many games that said, the White Sox are are fascinating because they seem to have arrived early, uh, which is really cool. The Rays look like they're, I mean, you know, they were they were really good last year, but they're, I mean, they look really, really good, you know, in the in the early going this thing. The A's look like a team that's like an actual threat, which is so strange because they have absolutely nobody uh that you can point to. Like I like teams like the A's that that you know are going to win their division you know pretty convincingly and don't have a single 
true MVP candidate. I, mm-hmm. I love, I love when that happens. Uh, so I, you know, so I, and then, and then of course the Yankees, you know, the, the, the Astros are, are, they haven't even locked in that, that eighth playoff spot yet, I guess. And so there's a lot of cool stuff happening in the American league. So let's, I'll just, I'll, I'll start you with the open-ended question. Then I'll go to specifics. What are you looking at in the American league uh, this year? What, what interests you? What excites you? Uh, I'm excited about the Rays. Um, that's, that's a team that I definitely circled for the 60-game season as being even more intriguing than 162 just because of their pitching depth. And they, yeah. as it turns out, they've really needed it. They've had uh, you know, a real massive wave of injuries over the course of the year and yet persevered and, and stayed on top of the AL East. And you know, would they have won the AL East in 162? Probably not. But um, you know, this, this reformatted situation worked to their benefit, and I really want to see what they can do with it. I, I'll forever wonder what the 2019 uh, division series against the Astros would have looked like if they had the full complement of Blake Snell and Tyler Glass. Now those guys were really limited in terms of, you know, pitch count innings, what have you, because the injuries they were coming off of, but they gave, they pushed the Astros to the brink in that series, if you remember. And um, I I just feel like those two guys at at full capacity might've been a difference maker there. So that's a really, just a, just a great organization and and just a really easy team to get behind. Um, And another one where, you know, it's not about any singular star, right. uh, you know, it, it's just about the collective, you know, Brandon Lau is, is their, is their best player. I guess they're, he would be their closest thing to an MVP candidate, but he's not uh, going to win the MVP. So <laughs> no, no. Um, it's just, the, it's just about the, you know, the, the sum being greater than whatever. Um, I love that. I love and, that. And, uh, and, and I should let, let me add one other thought about the race. Yeah. Anytime uh, I think you give, like anytime you change things dramatically, there are certain organizations you can count on to make the adjustments faster than anybody else. Yes. And like, you would have bet on the Rays to do that. Right. Like, I mean, that's, I, you know, we can talk about who the smartest organization, obviously the Dodgers are super smart in their own way. And the Yankees, you know, are smart in their own way and all of that. But honestly, it's like, if you put everybody in a room and next year you said, okay, here's the deal. We're going to have a full 162 game season, but you're no longer allowed to have a third baseman. Like, I feel like the Rays would be the team that would figure out how to make that work to their advantage. Like, that, yeah. that feels like that's the organization that, that is always just one step ahead of everybody else. Absolutely correct. And they have to be, you know, obviously, in, in, their, sure. in their situation. Oh, but, um, but here's the thing that's so great. I love with that. I mean, you're 100% right. They have to be. But the truth is, lots of teams have to be, and they right. aren't. You know I mean? Right. It's, like, it's like they have to be in order to be successful, but the other option, which is the option that, you know, the Cincinnati Reds have, have employed for a long time. The Marlins have employed for a long time is just don't be successful. So there, there, there isn't always another option for those teams. Uh, I, I love that the Rays are just absolutely will throw anything against the wall to make it work. Yeah. And they, you know, they, they obviously, they trade star power as it gets more expensive. You know, the Evan Longoria's of the world or, you know, uh, Chris Archer, what have you. Sure. Um, but they also lose a lot of brain power. <laughs> they get pilfered yes. left and right. I mean, yes. Andrew Friedman and Hyam Bloom uh, to the Red Sox this winter. James Click, like just before, right at the start of spring training, gets taken from the Rays <laughs> uh, because of the Astros situation. So, um, and they just keep keep pushing forward. So, like I said, easy team to root for. And then wow. elsewhere in the AL, I just, yeah, I like seeing teams get rewarded for um, betting on themselves in a responsible way. Um, you know, I look at the White Sox and the Blue Jays kind of in that category yeah. where, um, look, it, it, the rebuilding process, what have you, it can, it can be, 
you know, as granular as you want it to be, but you know, there's, they were starting to take some legitimate steps forward, but, um, and they really kind of went for it this winter in a way. I mean, the Blue Jays did it with Hunjin Ryu and, and the White Sox with Yasmani Grandal and others, Dallas Keuchel, and they've gotten rewarded for that. And there's, there's sometimes the, the winter splash is overrated and, and you're not quite ready for it. I mean, the Angels spent all that money on Anthony Rendon, who's been right. fantastic for them, but you know, they, they took some other more gambles uh, when it comes to the pitching and Dylan Bundy's worked out, but you know, the pitching just was not there and is not there. No. Um, but I, I like to see the White Sox and, and the Blue Jays get rewarded for, you know, making an effort uh, this winter, as opposed to just kind of steadily plotting the course. And uh, again, would it look the same in 162? I don't know. Um, I actually liked the White Sox more in 162 than 60, just because I thought it would take time for the younger parts of their lineup to mature. And, and to a degree, that's been true, but their pitching has just been way better than anticipated. So they, they sit at the top of the AL Central as a result. Yeah, look, they're, I, I think they're really, really fun. I mean, if you can't count on Dallas Keuchel basically putting up a, what'll be a sort of a mini Cy Young award season, you know, based on the, on the year they're having, uh, the number of games they're playing. But, you know, I mean, you know, Tim Anderson is – He's fantastic. I mean, we we saw you know that a little bit last year with the when he won the batting title. But I mean, he's like a legitimate. He's a star. He has arrived as a star. And obviously, Jose Abreu. Both those guys are are true MVP candidates uh, this year. And uh, Eloy, even though he's you know just maybe the worst outfielder I've ever seen, like on a regular <laughs> basis. Uh, what a hitter! And and you know that just team that you know Luis Ro- Luis Robert is is. You know, he's a fabulous, fab. he needs to be a fabulous center fielder, uh, but he is one. And, and, you know, even though he's been slumping, I mean, he's a guy that, that looks like a, like a big time player in the future. I mean, that it's, it's so interesting to me. And this is across sports. I remember the first time I ever had this, this thought for, for, you know, complete thought was when the St. Louis Rams like went from, from being terrible to good in one off season and, you know, essentially people always wrote it down as Kurt Warner coming in as a, as a, you know, he was a third string quarterback who, who was forced into duty and, and he turned out to be, you know, a hall of fame level player. So, so that people pointed to that and they're right. But the thing that was so interesting about that team is they had been putting together all of these little pieces. Like they had the best left tackle in football and then they had, you know, a great receiver and then they added another great receiver. And then, you know, during that off season, they went out and, and got a hall of fame running back. And, and then on defense, they had like a kind of good linebacker. And suddenly all of these little pieces that when they were terrible, didn't add up to anything. Suddenly you looked at them and went, wow, they're good. Like they're good everywhere. You look all around this team. They're good. And that happens in baseball, I think, even more than it happens in other sports where, you know, it just teams plot along, plot along, plot along. And you hear like, oh, you know, they've, they've got a great minor league system. They happen with the Royals, you know, where it's like, oh, they've got a great minor league system. And then they, they add a player and then they add a, a pitcher and then they add a couple of people in the bullpen. And, and then suddenly you go, wow, that team is good everywhere, like yeah. everywhere you look. And that's, that to me is what the White Sox feel like. It's, it's been three or four years of, yeah, the White Sox are getting better. They're, they've got a future. They're building. They're developing. And now, you know, like, I could see the White Sox being good for the next few years. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one way that can really sneak up on you in today's game is in the bullpen where, yes. you know, it can be such a deciding factor in how quickly you elevate in the standings. And, and that's probably where, you know, the underrated element of what the White Sox have done this year, because, you know, you don't, you don't get to where they are without bringing up guys in your system who uh, have really kind of shocking contributions, to be honest. I mean, Matt Foster, like, Matt Foster is like a, I think he's like a 20th round pick and he's been, you know, one of the best setup men in baseball and uh, Cody Hewer has been really good for them. Another, you know, lower profile pick. Um, you know, last weekend they bring up the kid they drafted this year, Garrett Crochet yes. <laughs> him in the first round. And next, he, next thing you know, he's up throwing 105 or whatever in the big league. So, you know, that that's really where it can swing click quickly, you know, um, it, the lineup maturation really does take time. And, and generally speaking, a, a good number of at-bats in the minor leagues. Um, but it, it's where it can really turn in a hurry is if you just have this cavalcade of arms that you've developed or traded for or what have you. And, you know, you, you turn around the fortunes of your pitching staff. That's what they've done. It happens quick. It really does. All right. We're both Cleveland guys. So uh, I can't let the podcast go by without at least saying this. Uh, I believe I've said it on this podcast before, but, how underrated is Jose Ramirez? He's he's fantastic. He's fantastic. What a fantastic player. Never gets mentioned. Yeah, Never. He had a moment there where, uh, you know, he had really uh, MVP, you know, he had two finalist uh, finishes in right. 2017 and 2018. Right. Um, but obviously, you know, like most players kind of playing second fiddle to Mike Trout in, in that conversation and others. Um, but – you never knew about the sustainability when he did break out the way he did. They got to the world series in 2016 in large measure because Jose Ramirez stepped up. Yes. Michael Brantley got hurt. And uh, you know, here's a guy who could kind of play everywhere. You, you could plug him into left field. You could plug him into third base, whatever you needed. He was originally just a utility guy. He was Francisco Lindor's backup in the minor yeah, league. He was projected yeah. to be Francisco Lindor's backup. So um, just, you know, the classic little guy with a big chip on his shoulder, you know, and uh, wants big things for himself and goes out and gets it. And he, he plays the game loose. He he's loose on and off the field. He's just just, uh, you know, just uh, he's quite a character, to say the least. So um, he had such an abysmal time, Joe, at the end of 2018. He was still a finalist in 2018 for the MVP, right. but he went into such a deep funk at the end of that season, continued into the playoffs. Uh, continued into the first half of 2019. Uh, but he pretty much, you know, since mid-season 2019, he's, he's been MVP caliber again. He might be the AL MVP, to be honest. Um, you know, Shane Bieber was kind of billed as that for them all season. But, you know, the way Jose's hit, it can change in a hurry in a, in a shortened season. So the last couple of weeks matter. And he's kind of put himself into that conversation. And again, we talked about, you know, financial element, and that always looms large in Cleveland. <laughs> they, were lock, yes. they were able to lock him up, you know, at, when he, when he first started to break out, he's, uh, I'm looking it up here. He's making six, about 6 million. And if it had been a full season in 2020, he'll make 9 million next year. So not just underrated, but underpaid. As underpaid. Well. Oh yeah. They, oh yeah. You know, they, they, they feast on that, uh, here in Cleveland. So, um, <laughs> and they'll probably lose Lindor this winter or soon thereafter. So yeah. it becomes all the more important to them. Well, I just, he's just one of those guys when, when people like start listing off the best players in baseball, you know, he had that stretch. You mentioned, you know, the, the back-to-back -back years where he finished third in the MVP voting. And in 2018, I mean, mid-year, I mean, he was the MVP, you know, I mean, it, it really was a, a terrible, terrible September 
that took him out of the running. I, I don't know if he would have won it. I mean, that was uh, <laughs> there was there was a guy uh, named Mookie Betts who had a pretty good year that year, and, and Mike Trout, of course, is always Mike Trout. But he was in, he was truly in the mix until he you know I don't think he got a hit that September. I mean, he just really really struggled, and then was was you know got off to the terrible start last year to them. And and he's one of those guys where people are so willing to write him off like instantly, like as soon as he goes in any kind of slump, they're like, yeah, there you go. That's what we mm-hmm. expected all along. And, you know, this year he got off, didn't he get off to a kind of a sluggish start this year? I don't think it was that great. Uh, of course the whole year is a start, but I mean like the first couple of weeks, I don't, but he's been crushing the ball uh, yes. as of late, absolutely killing it. He's a, you know, he, what is he five? I mean, you've stood next to him. He's, he is not five, nine. He is no. not. No way. I've stood next to him. He's not five nine, um, but he he hits with power. I mean, he led the league in doubles in seventeen. Hit thirty nine homers in eighteen. He's you know among the league leaders in homers this year. He's. I just think he's like like I think when you talk about the greatest players in baseball, he should be in that conversation. Um, you know, he's not Mike Trout because nobody is. But after that, I mean, he's you know he is a guy that should be absolutely in that conversation every every time. And I don't think he's going to win the MVP because I don't think enough people are talking about him. Um, but I think he should, or at least, you know, you could, you know, he leads the league now in, in, in war uh, by fan graphs. He, he doesn't uh, by baseball reference, but he, he absolutely has a case for MVP. I don't know that he's going to get it or not, but I, I hope that, that people start really fully appreciating how great he is. Yeah, he kind of, in some ways, reminds me because, you know, kind of a, a shorter, pudgy infielder who doesn't strike out a lot and gets his hits and his extra base hits. Kind of reminds me of like Carlos Baerga at his absolute best yeah. you know, before the wheels yeah. fell off of that particular career. <laughs> and the wheels have not fallen off for Jose Ramirez. And it was easy to wonder if they would, you know, after 2016, after 2017. And they haven't. And again, to me, it comes down to just the mentality he, he carries himself with. It, this guy, I remember when he arrived at the big leagues, he was walking around like, uh, Terry Francona calls it the George Jefferson walk, uh, you know, that kind of strut around. I'm like, right, who right. is this guy? Like, who does he think he is? And then he backs it up with the way he plays, just, you know, fierce on the field and yep. helmet flying off and all that. He's just, he's, he's super fun to watch and, um, you know, hope people uh, get to appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Maybe, maybe he, he needs just like a fabulous playoffs or something to, to sort of get exactly. him, you know, yeah. get him into the national uh, attention. I'm, by the way, Kudos. That's a big Cleveland move to bring up Carlos Baerga because <laughs> there was there was a two year stretch where you know, and this was right when Cleveland was was you know beginning to put together that ridiculous '90s lineup with with uh, with Manny and Bell, Albert Bell and Tommy and all the others. And Baerga was there first, you know, like Baerga was the he was absolutely carrying that team offensively for a couple of years before the wheels. Yeah, they came off. They, they came off pretty, pretty ugly way. All right. So who's going to win? That's it. I'm putting you on the spot. Who's going to win the American league based on, on, on uh, the, the three game, five game, two, seven, well, one, seven game, I guess. Uh, so three game, five game, seven game, uh, everybody playing every day. Absolutely a crapshoot. There's no way to know who's going to win it. So I'm going to ask you who's going to win the American league. It's the Yankees. Come on, Joe. The Yankees <laughs> are going to win. There's, I mean, we've well, all been Yankees. just beaten over the head this year by every element of life. Every, uh, 
you know, uh, every unanswered uh, or unsolved issue in America coming home to roost. And, <laughs> and that's how it's going to end is with the Yankees not only winning the AL, but winning the World Series. Because oh, yeah. That's the only way this can end is for the vast majority of the country to be upset. Exactly. Uh, that's right. <laughs> no, and that's fair. That's fair. I wrote that. I, you know, when, when the Yankees uh, were in the middle of their terrible slump and people were actually talking yeah. about them missing the playoffs, you saw what I tweeted. I tweeted, okay. uh, yeah, like, uh, you know what? They're, they're setting us up. You know it. And, of course, they haven't lost since then. And DJ LeMahieu, who probably is going to win the MVP, I just sort of have this feeling it's going to be LeMahieu. I, I, that guy drives me absolutely crazy. Because, look, he's a great player, and I'm not – it's nothing personal against D.J. LeMayhew. He's a, he seems like a great guy. Um, he could not hit at the end in Colorado. In Colorado, there's no you, – you, you can't not hit in Colorado. And he absolutely looked done uh, as – you know, and look, he was still – he's still a good fielder. He still, you know, brought some value. And it wasn't like when the Yankees got him, it's like, oh, okay, he's going to be terrible. But you're like, he's going to be – and he's better than ever. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely – he's in 370 or something. I mean, it's uh, – DJ LeMahieu. I just want to just say that. No, it's, it's, it's warranted because that was the, uh, the winter of Bryce Harper and Manny Machado. Yes. And everyone yes. expecting the Yankees to sign one or both, and they signed DJ the LeMahieu. They signed then, the best player of the exactly, group. It's exactly. ridiculous. All right, let's talk a little bit about the National League. I mean, look, we, we uh, can talk about the Dodgers. They feel to me like the perfect team for any season, mm. particularly for this season. They feel like because they're deeper than everybody else. But let's let's leave the Dodgers for last. Uh, I'm excited about the Padres because how can you not be? Um, anybody else you like? What, who else do you like in the National League? I don't know. The National League is a mess, and yeah, it's, it's going to continue to be a mess until – probably even through Monday of next week, we probably won't know <laughs> that, uh, you know, who's playing who uh, the Cardinals will perhaps have to play a doubleheader on Monday to get to 60 games. Right. Uh, if they're, you know, if a playoff spot is to be determined by that. So uh, it's just a mess. You don't know who's playing who and when, and I don't know. I went into the year picking the Atlanta Braves and then their rotation just dismantled in front of our eyes. Um, but, that being said, you know, Max Freed can certainly swing a series and I, I don't put it past them to, to still go the distance, but it's hard to pick against the Dodgers or Padres. Just they are the, you know, the it teams in the National League right now. And, uh, I, you know, it, it's hard not to, you know, lean that way right now. What a disastrous short season this has been for the Washington Nationals. It's, yeah. you know, it's, it's, you look at the Nationals and other than, you look at him over the like the last say, well, let's say when Dave Martinez became manager. So that was so it's been three seasons, just about fully three seasons. Other than that, you know that uh, whatever, however long that window was, 110 game window where they they ended up sneaking into the playoffs, and then those three weeks when when everything went right for them and they won the World Series, it's been kind of terrible there and. Yeah. And, you know, and then, of course, they, you know, they lost Rendon. Uh, Strasburg's been hurt all year. But, look, even beyond that, I mean, everybody's dealing with injuries. That team just looks like a complete mess to me. It's like Juan Soto is having an amazing season and is an amazing player. Trey Turner is having the best year of his life. They can't win a game. It's, yeah. it's crazy. Yeah, and they, had, they didn't have Soto at the very beginning of the year because – 
he, he claims it was a false positive. Um, so he wasn't available right. for, you know, a week or two and Strasburg five innings, you know, but, yeah. but I think the, probably the overarching point with them is just that all the things that benefited them down the stretch last season and then into the playoffs, uh, the old guys, uh, 30 something guys who right. that, that veteran presence that, that gets so, uh, uh, you know, left, left for dead in the free agent marketplace anymore. They, they kind of seized on it and it worked for them. And that very thing is now working against them. I think in the shortened season where, um, you know, I think this, this format really benefited people who are young and loose and free and, and nimble, and they haven't been that. And, you know, the injuries don't help. And, the, the pitching takes a step back. Anibal Sanchez, uh, even Max Scherzer hasn't been, you know, been by South young Patrick, level Max Corbin, Scherzer. So. Corbin is yeah, Corbin, yeah. Down. So yeah. It, it's just, you, you almost, anymore in baseball, you almost expect defending champs to not stink, but, you know, not just not be at that level. And I think it's 11 of them this century haven't even made the playoffs the following year. Right. But the Nats are even beyond that. I mean, they're going to, they, they could end up with a sub 400 winning percentage. They could be the second worst <laughs> defending champion of all time behind the uh, 98 Marlins. So yes. that's not good company. Yeah. And the 98 Marlins uh, did not resemble uh, the, <laughs> right. the team that uh, won the world series. You know, it's one other point before we talk about the Padres and the, and the Dodgers, who I think everybody's favorite is I'm fascinated at what the Cubs have become like, if 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 2016 had never happened, people would be like really fired up about the Cubs, right? Like they're 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 winning the division, they're going to the playoffs. You know, there would be there would be history on the line. I mean that that team is still really good. You know, I mean they 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 have potentially. I mean, I you know I, I don't think he's going to win the Cy Young now that uh, that uh, Jacob Degrom seems to you know, basically I think they're just going to rename the award after him, no matter, no matter how few runs the Mets score. Um, but you Darvish is having a Cy Young year. Kyle Hendricks is having, you know, something similar to a Cy Young year. Uh, you know, that bullpen has been pretty good. I mean, it's not been, not been great, but it's been pretty good. We know that lineup, even though the, there are a lot of guys on there having subpar seasons. Uh, we know that lineup can, can, explode and score a lot of runs, uh, even, even without Chris Bryant, um, uh, who, what the heck happened to him? I, that's that, that has been crazy, but, um, but you, I mean, nobody's even talking about them. Nobody cares. It's like, it's (laughs) the Cubs have just become another team. This was my one thing. And I asked a bunch of Cubs fans and they were all like, you're crazy. I don't care. I will never, and I don't blame them. Hey, you want to win a world series, but I said, look, you'll win a World Series, and it'll be awesome, and, and it'll be wonderful to, to no longer have to hear about all the, you know, the curses and, and all the other nonsense, but you just become another team at that point. You're, you're just another team, and I kind of feel like that's what the Cubs are now. It's like they're not – I mean, of course, they're in, you know, they're in the great city of Chicago. They're, they're wonderful. Uh, Wrigley Field's amazing, but – and they're that whatever it was that separated the Cubs, it's it's gone now. I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, the the search is better sometimes. I mean, not the, the moment itself was fantastic Amazing. for them and, and the aftermath Amazing. and all yeah. that. But now you look back and you wonder where's that dynasty that you were expecting to be born yeah. from that. Yeah. Um, and you know, though they built that thing around that idea of look, if you're part of the uh, you know the, the first Cubs team to win in forever 
that's a marketable asset in your back yes. pocket for life. And I, and they, you know, John Lester signed for less money there than I think he would have gotten in San Francisco. And um, Ben Zobrist, I, I think signed for, for less than he was maybe perceivably worse. So um, they guys bought into that and, and lived that moment and the steak dinners that come with it and all that. So, um, but I, I think they went into this year really looking around the room and realizing in addition to the trade rumors last winter, just, just look at the complexion of the roster and saying this, this could be the last go around with this particular yeah. core. And they, they've kind of, to their credit, you know, they, they've stayed, they've stayed COVID free, which is a very, a big key in this year. Yes. And they haven't given yes. themselves the, the crazy schedule that comes with that. And they've uh, you know, I don't know. They, they, they've kind of pieced it together despite some things that you wouldn't expect them to be able to piece it together around talking about Chris Bryant, uh, talking about Javi Baez being just a guy this year. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you would expect that those guys would have to be MVP caliber for the Cubs to be where they are. So um, well, Darvish is a big part of that. But um, yeah, if somebody told you at the beginning of the year that Jason Hayward would be your best hitter in the lineup, right? Uh, you, you probably wouldn't feel too good. About it. And of course, to be fair or unfair or however you want to look at it, they're not a very good offensive team. They're not scoring a no. lot of runs, but they're but their pitching is is making up for it. And 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 they're getting they're getting some key hits and. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think again, every all the focus is going to be on the Dodgers because because the Dodgers, and then the Padres are the exciting young team that 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 is you know trying to challenge them. And I I don't know that the Cubs couldn't just slip in there and 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 sneak this thing out, and and suddenly everybody will look around and go, hey, look, it's the Cubs. The Cubs are in this thing. That's I, I just, I don't know. I just have this weird feeling about the Cubs. I could see that too, because I mean, the, the Padres, we don't know what that's going to look like for them. They haven't been there, you know, and, and, right? and well, nobody's been there in terms of nobody's this been format, but, Nobody. but they specifically yes. have not been there. And then the Dodgers, I mean, they could match up with the Reds in the first round and have, have to beat uh, Trevor Bauer and Luis Castillo in, in back-to-back days. That's no, you know, no easy task. So uh, I, I'm just, I'm going into this actually just expecting the Dodgers to get bounced in the best of three, just because, <laughs> because how do you because 2020, right? Yeah, it's 2020 <laughs> and everyone will complain about the format and that's just how it will be. Uh, I'm, I'm almost anticipating that. So uh, be it the Reds or the Giants or Phillies or whoever they happen to face in that first round, I'm kind of going in expecting that. By the way, I, I actually meant to mention this before. We were talking about uh, the Bryce Harper, Machado, uh, you know, offseason or whatever. Very quietly, which is so hard to believe that he could do it this quietly, Manny Machado's having an incredible season. I know. I yeah, mean, totally. really, truly incredible season. And I, I kind of brushed past that because of uh, because LeMahieu and, and all that. But, I mean, Machado's got a legitimate MVP case. Oh, yeah, absolutely does. Yeah, it, it really – this is the the beauty of the 60 game season is where like I'm, I'm writing or talking about something one week and literally the next week, it's just it's totally all changed. blown out of the water. It's, all yeah, changed. it's, it's worthless. <laughs> um, Cause I'll take, and, and Jose Ramirez is an example of this as well. He was having a fine season, a fine yeah. season, but then you go crazy for a week and suddenly you're an MVP. Right. So uh, you know, anybody who goes crazy this last week could insert themselves in that conversation as well. But um, yeah, Machado has a deserving case. It, it did get overlooked just because, Fernando Tatis Jr. was the player of the yes. season yes. for so long at the beginning of the year, not just in stats, but in narrative too, just, you know, challenging the unwritten rules and, and just, he was such a magnetic presence, but then, you know, really fell off uh, statistically in September. And then you, as you said, you look up now here as we get into late September and Machado is probably the guy for the MVP. I think so. I mean, I think, and, and it, it, it snuck up on me. I mean, I, you know, I, I knew he was having a perfectly fine season. He, you know, he, he kind of, 
always does. I mean, it's not it's not like he he's just gone in the tank or anything. Sort of the way that Anthony Rendon is having a very good season. Nobody cares. Nobody's watching. Um, but he passed Tatis. I mean, like if you if you look at it from a statistical standpoint and 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 whatever, he, it's he passed Tatis at some point on this MVP ladder. And you're right. That could change. Look, Tatis could go four for four tonight with two homers, and then he'll pass Machado. I mean, it's it is a very fluid situation, but Machado really is having a great, great season. Um, all right, I, even with your prediction that the Dodgers will lose, because sure, of course they will. Um, man, is that team good? Yeah, I mean, it's they're obscenely good. Well, and what's crazy about it is there's no there's no time in the, you know, near or distant future where they shouldn't be good. And right. things can happen. And, you know, just things happen in, in baseball. We see that all the time. And, and the Nationals in 2020 are a great example of that, how quickly, a, you know, a great team can go bad, or at least a good team can go bad. Uh, but the Dodgers, you know, where is the end in sight? I mean, they keep calling yeah. up kids. <laughs> they call up Dustin May, Tony, Tony Gonsolin. Uh, they just keep bringing kids up who can, you know, who can pitch, who can hit, whatever. Gavin Lux. The pipeline is just persistent it and never stops. the money is there so they can do something like, you know, trade for Mookie Betts and then sign them for all the money in the world and, and keep pushing forward. So I don't I don't see why that engine should stop running. It's just a matter of do they piece it together in October in a way that they haven't to date. Um, but, you know, they, they are a great example of the flukiness of the postseason and, you know, winning seven straight division titles on their you know, on the cusp of number eight and. And, and maybe they don't get it done this year because of this fluky format. But, you know, so hopefully they're not the, you know, the Buffalo Bills of, <laughs> of baseball here. But um, but even if they are, I'm going to look at that uh, roster construction and just the uh, the relentless nature of it and and, and still remain impressed for, for years to come. Because it's it, it's hard to win eight straight division titles in well, Major League Baseball. It's just a really and, thing to do. And they're so – you they run – the organization is run so well. I mean, it's, you, we talk about uh, Tampa Bay being an organization that uh, that uh, you know always seems one step ahead. The Dodgers are the Rays. You know, they're Andrew Friedman's Rays with money. You know, so I mean, it's it's uh, it, it it takes it to a whole other level. I, I just there's just not a weakness on this team. I, I mean, of course they can lose a three game series. They can lose a three game series to. To anybody, they could lose a three-game series to the to the Pirates. I mean, and then we all know how baseball works. But I, I, you look at that team, and and okay, what do you want going into uh, a weird postseason like this? You want the best rotation. They've got the best rotation. You know, you want a lineup that is is dangerous one through nine. They've got a, a lineup that's dangerous one through nine. They've got MVPs. Uh, on this team, they've got uh, a bullpen that you know hasn't been um, you know hasn't been the best in baseball, but it's really really good. Um, and they and they're the best fielding team. And I I just I don't know what it is that like if they go into this system and lose early, which could obviously happen, you just have to draw it up to sort of man. I just the Dodgers are just they're going to have the best team in baseball and they're going to lose to the Astros, you know, during a cheating season, they're going to, they're going to, you know, have the best team. I think this is their best team they've ever had uh, in this, in this run. 
and and it's going to be in the middle of a pandemic. You, you know, at some point you have to you have to wonder if you know the Dodgers start looking in the mirror and going, well, "Is it us? You know, what's what what exactly what exactly have we done wrong karmically in order to affect this?" But I still think they go in heavy, heavy favorites to win it all. Yeah, they should be. They they should be. Uh, even you know, regardless of the expecting fluky things to happen in this format, right. I would just say the one. Maybe the one thing that could trip them up is they are a little more susceptible to not just left-handed, not left-handed pitching on its face, but good left-handed pitching yeah. can somehow sometimes give them trouble. And so if you, if the matchup just isn't right for them, but yeah, I mean, there's no reason why they shouldn't advance and, and go deep and, and win it all. Because as you said, they, they hit on all the right areas. They have young talent. They have experienced talent. Um, you know, the, the, I guess the Clayton Kershaw narrative will be a, a thing again that we're all looking at because <laughs> oh, um, that's exciting. Yeah, Cause he's cause pitching great. Cause he's, yeah, pitching no, he's great again. You know, he's, I mean, that's... he's uh, defeating father time, you know, yes. by mixing it up and whatnot. So yeah, no reason why they shouldn't. And that's why they will. I think that's right. I think that's right. <laughs> by the way, they're one of those there. You mentioned something. It's really true. I mean, against them, against good left-handed pitching. But I'm looking at that lineup, and I don't understand why they can't hit good left handed. I mean, I guess it it sort of neutralizes Bellinger, and and uh, you know, and I think Seager's not as good from from that side. But um, that lineup should be plenty good against left handed pitching. Yeah, too. I mean, it's it's <laughs> we're we're talking about we're looking for something. You know, we're yeah. nitpicking. Uh, you know, amongst nitpits, that that's what you're doing with the Dodgers, just because of of how well they are built. You maybe hope you get to Jansen. Maybe you steal a game right. by, by yeah. beating Jansen. I mean, it's that is really where they are. So, who are you picking? Since you're not picking the Dodgers, who are you picking <laughs> in the National League? Oh man, well I'll, I'll go with the I'll go with the Padres. Um, just kind of riding the wave, and I like it. obviously you know that I, I hate to you know take the flavor of the month because that, that's basically what they are, especially after the trade deadline. But you know they're flavor of the month for a reason. They they are deep where it counts in this format. They're they're deep on the pitching side. They they add an ace type in, in Clevenger. He can certainly pitch like one. Um, so, uh, you know, that that's a team that I, I could certainly see going the distance. And that's good. To the Yankees. <laughs> I, since so many of these uh, players get introduced to uh, to America during the postseason, where people suddenly like, oh, who's that guy? I've never even heard of him. Um, there, are, there are three pitchers on that Padres team, including Clevenger. Yeah. Um, who you would look at and go, oh my God, that guy's an ace. I mean, they have they have three guys who I think are you know pretty legitimate aces as right now. Yeah, Denelson Lamette has been fantastic for them. Fabulous. Uh, you know, Zach Davies has been amazing. For them. He's been amazing. It's another one where uh, it's always those lower profile deals that end up being a, a big big deal uh, where they get uh, Grisham and Davies uh, in the trade with the Brewers and and you know Grisham's been fantastic for them and now Chris Paddock on measure his numbers aren't you know, ace type by any means this year, but certainly the stuff uh, is good. Yeah. Play up in October. So um, their bullpen now has not been, I thought that was going to be the true strength of this club mm -hmm. going into the year. And then, uh, you know, they, they take some injury hits and uh, um, so that it's, it's maybe not the force it, it, it looked to be going into the year, but still probably good enough to, to get them there. Um, yeah. The NL is, is wide open. Beyond, like wide open. If, if we go into the idea of, of the Dodgers getting bounced in the first round, getting upset, <laughs> the NL is totally wide open. But even beyond that, I, I do think um, there's just going to be a lot of wackiness going on in that in that first round, and and the uh, the adjustment it will take to not know your opponent in all likelihood until the day before the series starts is going to be interesting as well. Yeah, there. Well, there are six six or seven teams in the National League who are basically the same team. I mean, that's it, it's it's 
the they're so even it just feels uh it feels like it really could be a crapshoot by the way one other one final point and then I'm, I'm we're moving on um if the dodgers do get bounced in the first round that would be the thing that would would to me challenge the legitimacy of this postseason i i mean it's it's not it's it, it is you know like i said before everybody's going in with knowing the rules and all that but you know, the Dodgers are very clearly the best team in baseball, or at least, you know, on paper and, and in performance, the best team in baseball. And if they get bounced in a three-game series against whoever, I mean, whoever's the eight seed, the Reds or, or whoever it is, um, yeah, then I think, you know, you'll be like, oh, is, is this real? Is this yeah. really, does this really matter, you know? Yeah, and, and not that we necessarily need that to happen to to feel this anyway, but right. I, I think it would illustrate that, that 16 is probably a step too far in a full season. Um, again, we all know the particulars of, of 2020, but 16-team postseason just, just feels a bit much, yeah. uh, unless yeah. it's structured in such a way that division winners can get a reasonable amount of rest, not too much rest. Uh, but I, I really think where this is probably headed is 14 in, in some it's still some capacity for me for me that's well i I think it could be structured in such a way you know what was floated over the winter before covid before all of this uh you know where there was kind of that that built-in incentive at every level to where there's incentive to play at home as a division winner in in a best of three first round and have all three of those games at home there's incentive to be the top seed overall and have and be you know to rest for that round to not to play that round uh which is what the dodgers would have in this situation um so I, I didn't, I didn't hate it as much as I, when I, when I first heard it, you know, your skin crawls and then I, I kind of dug into it and, and I kind of like the incentivized structure. Yeah, um, I, I don't, don't love you, it. I don't know if you've seen this Jerry Reinsdorf idea that's 14, but the division winners rest and the wild card teams duke it out with single elimination. Um, kind of like a four team tournament, a single elimination. That That's an interesting idea. I, I think there's ways to do it that aren't horrible. Um, it's going, something's going to happen. We're, we're going to see more than 10. That's yeah. a given. Um, so you know, what is that going to look like? I, I think there are ways to make 14 in, in a way an improvement on 10 in that, um, you know, you can, uh, you, you can build in incentives that don't exist uh, under the current format for 162 to where there's not necessarily uh, a big advantage to being a division winner, to being a top seed in your league. Um, if, if you can find a way to structure it to where that incentive exists, I think you make both the regular season and the postseason more exciting. I think you, and then, you know, by nature, involving more teams involves more fan bases. So there, there's probably a way to do it. And uh, I expect them to do it because <laughs> well, I know they're going to do it. You don't put I'm, the genie gonna... back in the bottle after, right. after you're going to 16 right. and, and all the revenue that creates. I mean, no, no, they're they, I know yeah. they're going to do it. And, and, uh, and all of your points are right. And I know that most people are, are on the side of, of more playoffs anyway, for, for, for various reasons. I don't like it at all. And that's, that's the one sort of place where I, where I feel a little bit of that sort of purist uh, mentality. I, I don't see what 162 game season is for when you're allowing 14 teams, 16 teams, frankly, 10 teams. But, but I mean, you know, when you're, when you're allowing half the league, more than half the league this year into the playoffs, why are you playing 162 games for what? And, you know, some of these incentives that people talk about, I think work both ways. Like, Sure, if you want to have a, a first round where where the, the division winner gets all three games at home, well, that's fine. But then the team that makes the playoffs that that goes on the road, well, who cares? If you're a fan, why would you care? You don't even get a, a playoff game at home, assuming 
that you lose, which you should, because you shouldn't have been in the playoffs in the first place. And then, and then the rest thing, I don't know that that plays to your, I mean, yes, you get a little rest and all that. And, and, but I don't know that that really plays to an advantage. I don't know that it plays to a disadvantage either. I just don't know that that's really, I'm sure the players would like it because you get a few days off. That's nice. But I don't really know that as far as, as far as, you know, winning and losing that it really plays any, you know, any real advantage. I, I, it just feels to me like all of it is, is like, look, there's, if, if, if you come to me and you say, okay, there are going to be 16 teams in the playoffs. Now you figure out how to make it work. Yeah. You can, you can come up with all sorts of, of things. And, and I sort of agree more with the, with a Reinsdorf mentality, which is having, you know, the teams have their own little play in, you know, postseason to try to get into the playoffs. I'm all, you know, I, I get all that. Um, but I think that, that you're starting with the premise of 16 teams, which is, to me, it's antithetical to, to what baseball is. And that is, it should be a long season. It is a long season. And at the end of the season, you know who the best teams are. They've earned it through, through six months of play. And now you're just throwing in all this other stuff in order to sort of create a, a fun little reality TV show. If that's what they want, that's what we get. But it's not. That to me is is uh, it's not what it should be about. But that argument has not only been been waged; I have lost it. So I understand <laughs> that we're going. Well, I, wanna, the- I would say, and it's all fair. Everything you said is absolutely fair. And and sixteen is again, I, I think, a step too far. But um, but your your thesis about one sixty two. The counter to that is, well, do we need to play one sixty two? Well, and if you expand the playoffs, maybe that's a, a carrot for the players to get the season shortened. Um, I don't know because I. I don't know. I, I, I think I you, I think the, you have to lean towards I think tradition, to. but I think you, I think at some point the season will, or perhaps should be shortened because. Well, I see there, that's where I lose my traditionalist thing. If you're going to have these many playoffs, don't play yeah. 162. Right. I'm, I'm all for shortening the season. Of course you shorten the season. Then you, then you take away the statistical, uh, you know, records that people get all excited about. And, and, and so you have to, you know, no longer 200 hits isn't a real thing anymore. And, you know, and, and uh, obviously nobody's going to break uh, these big records anymore, but maybe in a shorter season, somebody will hit 400. I mean, I, I, I think that there's a way to play around with all of this, but I, but I don't feel like it is one cohesive decision. I think it's, it's everybody chasing the dollar so the dollar leads you to the playoffs. The playoffs leads you to shorten the season. Shortening the season leads you to whatever it leads. You know, it doesn't feel like people are going, okay, hey, the best possible viewing experience for fans in baseball is this long a season, this many playoff teams, boom, boom, boom. I, I, I want that. I want the thought process to go that way. And, and instead, it feels like, okay, we're starting with we're adding a bunch of playoff teams. Now you guys figure out what that means, and and that that does nothing for me. So, so we'll end up with a uh, hundred seven inning games, and then uh, a twenty team postseason tournament, and uh, blow up the leagues, and we can go all the way out into the night with all kinds of uh, ideas to reformat this thing. Absolutely. Okay, so we've talked uh, enough baseball. Let's let's talk Bruce for a minute. Um, so, to uh, I believe you talked about this last time you were on, but but for those that don't know, 
Uh, you are an enormous Bruce Springsteen fan. Yeah, not not obsessive, not mildly obsessive, like over obsessive. Overly obsessive. How many times have you seen Bruce Springsteen? I've seen him 52 times. and 52 times. We'll see after all of this, you know, if there's another one in store. Okay, but 52, you don't want it to end at 52, but you've seen him 52 times. You are a thoroughly uh, huge Bruce fan. And this thing, I believe, is going to come out on Bruce's birthday, right? Because that is, that is uh, we are recording this on Tuesday and isn't his birthday tomorrow? That's absolutely correct. September 23rd, national holiday, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> when, when is that going to become a national holiday? I don't know, but I plan to listen to nothing but Bruce Springsteen on his birthday, as I do each year. But that doesn't really, it's not really distinguished from many other days is the problem. How, as my what order, what order do you put that in? Like, what, so, what, so how, will you, how will you spend your day? How will you spend Bruce Springsteen day tomorrow? Um, well, I'll, I'll listen to the new track. He's got a new track out, Letter to You. Yeah. And, uh, I'll be honest with you. It's not I, doing it for me. I understand. I've got to be honest I understand. With you. Um, it's well, okay. I'll just, I'll just start there and then see where the uh, inspiration takes me. I, I, oh, I so mean, you, this is all, I'm totally full of it because this, this would require the time to listen to anything um, with, <laughs> with, with three young kids in the house and a job. Uh, so, you know, maybe if I, I go on my nightly walk, those, those 15 to 20 minutes, I'll be able to uh, listen to a few Bruce songs. Okay, that's good. All right, so you can back me up on this because, again, when, when I'm on with Mike, uh, you know, I, I try to tone back, tone down my, my, my love of Bruce Springsteen for, for two reasons. One, uh, because Mike is not a fan, as I mentioned, but two, because, man, sports writer loving Bruce is just such a cliche. It's yeah. just, it's, it's, by the way, how do, you, how do you handle that? How do you handle the anytime you say anything good about Bruce, you get 500 uh, responses to the effect of, oh yeah, wow, a sports writer who likes Bruce Springsteen. Wow. That's... Yeah, it's, it's disappointing because not, I mean, this is not tooting my own horn. It's, it's admitting a, a major uh, a problem of mine, <laughs> but you know, I, I don't put myself in that category. I, I would have been a ridiculous obsessive Bruce Springsteen fan, no matter right. what. I, I was a big Bruce Springsteen fan before I was officially a sports writer. Just, I have sure. to be a sports writer and surrounded by Me too. other, but I, I put myself in a, in a category where, no, you don't understand. This is not, I'm not a fan. I am you know, a bona fide. <laughs> I've got bona fides. Okay. So, do. Uh, but yeah, there is something there. There's no doubt about it. Um, I mean, many sports writers, it's it skewed towards the, you know, older white male demographic anyway. Yes, and that's, that's Bruce Springsteen's audience. <laughs> so I think that's a, a big part of it. Um, but I think there's an appreciation for, you know, the earnestness and, and the grittiness and, uh, you know, what he puts in his performances and many of the things that, that lead people to write crazy you know, flattering things about David Eckstein back in the day are, are the things that, that lead him to write, you know, to think flattering things about Bruce Springsteen. It's, it's see, I don't, of, I see, I don't think, I don't think that's right. I mean, look, I've, of course the, the, you know, anytime you can compare Bruce Springsteen and David Eckstein, you got to do it. But um, I think what makes Springsteen different. And I was going to say this last week during our uh, draft of rock stars, uh, but didn't, because again, I don't like, uh, bringing it up in front of uh, Mike, and and also he was so uh, dismissive of of everything other than uh, Tom Petty being the greatest rock and roll star of all time. Which, by the way, I'm a I like Tom Petty a lot. I'm a fan, but taking Tom Petty number one overall in the greatest rock stars thing felt off to me. It felt like that's that's you know it's it's like when somebody's so underrated they become overrated. That like that happened. But I gotta say, in in Mike's defense uh i've been getting like crushed 
for for even suggesting that Tom Petty might not be the greatest rock star of all time uh, on Twitter. People wow. have been crushing me for that, which is so weird to me. Uh, so I so I'm I'm look I I like the guy a lot, and maybe I just haven't appreciated him enough. But getting back to my point, I think what makes Springsteen so popular among a certain kind of sport, not just sports writers, but journalists in general, um, is that he is this weird combination of performer, which of course on stage he's, you know, I think he's unmatched as a, as a, as a performer and, and a writer, you know, because I, I mean, his, he, he takes tremendous uh, care in, in, in writing his songs. The lyrics are, you know, they're, we, we've talked about the speedball thing in, in glory days, but you know, he, he's not perfect, but I mean, he's, he's written some of the most enduring lyrics in rock and roll history uh, and, and is always so dedicated to, to his, to his writing, to his craft. I think that combination is very unusual. I think you have a lot of people who are amazing performers. I think you have a lot of people who are great lyricists in general, great songwriters, there are not that many who are both, you know? Right. No, absolutely true. And let me just say one thing. You and I have a mutual friend uh, who has called, has labeled <laughs> Tom Petty, quote, just a guy, which that is a step too far. Taking him that's first too far. overall in the American Rockstars draft is one step, one way too far. And that's the other, yes. the other direction. Too far. I love right. Tom Petty. Uh, Wildflowers uh, is being fabulous uh, this coming month in, in the, you know, expanded and all the outtakes. I'm, I'm very yes. excited about that. That's, that's a masterpiece. So, um, but he's still, he's no Bruce Springsteen for the reason you mentioned, Joe, because to, to take it up, he, he always has one foot in tradition, does Bruce. Um, the, the great band leaders of, uh, you know, Sam and Dave's and James Brown's of the world. He's got that element. Uh, yes. Elvis Presley, even. Uh, he's got that. He's got the songwriting. He can do the Dylan thing. He can do the ultra narrative songwriting. Um, he does, he, he blends so many worlds, I think, so well. And so many genres, even within, you know, rock and roll. And uh, I think it's a masterclass when you really uh, you can listen to these shows he's done on Sirius this year uh, during this pandemic, where amazing. Um, it's it's amazing how he blends all styles of music to tell to convey a story or a feeling that you know something we've all been going through uh, during this pandemic or, or social unrest that we've seen in the country this summer. So he's, he just does such a good job of of contextualizing things, I guess, through music. And uh, I think. And I don't hope you don't mind me saying this, but I think like people come to Bruce Springsteen for the same reason people come to your writing, Joe. It's like your ability to put things in context, your ability to, you know, the, the, the purity of, of just kind of human expression and experience. Uh, I think it's all there. So um, you can be serious and you can be super goofy and so can Bruce. So, um, you know, that's that's why that's why we show up. And that's why I go to 52 shows. Is, and I think he said something once about, you know, people don't come to rock shows to uh they come to be reminded of something I, I, that's something i get it from it time after time it's just uh uh it, it's a feeling you, you i've been to many rock concerts and many different varieties of concerts but there's there's just something it, the only thing i have found comparable to a bruce springsteen concert was hamilton was seeing hamilton yeah uh in that touching on every emotion uh and it, obviously incredible performance um, that, that was the closest thing I've ever seen to, to kind of that, what it, what it leaves you with when you walk out of the building. You know, I only brought you on here so you could compare me to Bruce <laughs> and, and, uh, and go on about how awesome I am. Um, 
No, that's right. I think that's right. I and, and look, I get people that don't get it or invest that energy in other people. That's great. And if Tom Petty does that for you, awesome. That's so awesome. I it just feels to me like like there's never been a career quite like Springsteen's. When you bring in, you know, you also the point you bring up just the different kinds of music he's such a fan of all music you know so so you get a little country and you get a little r&b and you get a you know some some classic rock and roll and you get all of these these different genres and different uh you know just sort of it's the american experience in music he tries to touch on all of that and that's not to say others don't but the other element of it is uh, the way he can express that in a show yeah. is is unique. It's just it's just unique. So basically, all I wanted you to say was that I definitely won the rock. Uh, oh, I mean, draft. that was. Uh, where did Elvis go? Elvis, I mean, Elvis, fourth round, Elvis. and 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 no credit for choosing Elvis <laughs> in the fourth round. I mean, look, look they, I, they made some good points about Elvis and the racial implication. You know, yes, of course. Wiping, all, uh, it's, it's, yeah, but I think there was a real overcorrection there because what they missed <laughs> was wasn't just the music and the style and the R and B that he swiped. It's also Elvis brought sex to rock and roll. It, it was, yes, that's what he did, and that's that's like fifty to sixty percent of it. You know, so I, I don't know how you could leave him you know, on the draft board that long, he should have been number one overall. It's Elvis Presley for crying out loud. So, it's, and, and, and by the way, uh, you know, the, one of the points that they brought up and again, it, it wasn't, it wasn't Elvis specifically so much that stole Elvis was, you know, he was inspired in much of the same way the Beatles were inspired by, by, uh, by the great blues performers of, of the past. I mean, he was what he was now the people that made all the money off of Elvis. Yeah. I mean, of course that's, you know, they, 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 uh, you know, took advantage of the fact that they were reaching white audiences with, with black music and they were not doing that with, with, uh, little Richard and, and Chuck Berry mm -hmm. and, and, uh, you know, and all those great blues performers and all of that, but he was beloved in, in, uh, among, uh, African-American singers, absolutely beloved. Chuck Berry loved him and Aretha Franklin loved him. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very interesting, you know, uh, history, uh, when you look at Elvis Presley and, and of course they, they didn't want to accept that, but that's, uh, that's why I wanted you on here. So you could just crown me the victor and we can move on. And, and to say elegant prose about your writing, of course. Um, <laughs> but you're not, but you're not feeling the new song. Not feeling it. I, and, and, and look, I'll give it time. I mean, I want it in the context of the full album. So I yeah, want, yeah. I want that, but it, and this is not the first time that's happened, by the way, like he'll yeah. release a, a new song and I'll be like, eh, it's, right. Let's just do it. And then, but then once you see what he's going for with the album and you see everything else, it's, it's, we'll see. Yeah, but he's, but he's one of the last few album oriented musicians yes. that there is. Yes. That, that is important. It doesn't work on a, on a single nature. And generally speaking, his, his recorded work is just not nearly on par with his live work. Uh, he's made some poor production choices along the way. And that's yeah. why I'm excited though about this album, because uh, I mean, this, even if you don't like this first single letter to you, the, the lyrics are just kind of whatever, but I'm, I'm listening to the performance again, the earnestness of the performance, the E street yes. band 
in a room together, which they haven't done since the Born in the USA album. He's he went on this really the last 20, 30 years where he, he does everything where he demos it himself and then musicians add to it after the fact. Right. Like if you were to right. record this podcast, you just talking and then like I have to intersperse <laughs> my part my parts after the fact. It doesn't work as well. So uh, he's got a great producer now, Ron Aniello, who did his last solo album, Western Stars, which is his best sounding album probably since Born to Run. And so just sonically. And so I, I'm hearing the performance of the Street Band, just how good they sound on this. So that, that's what I'm really keyed in on. And that's why I'm most excited about this album is they just, they record it live, no overdubs. And I don't know if you heard the story in the Rolling Stone. Uh, he's on the cover of Rolling Stone this week where yep. this all springs out of, he, he had writer's block for the East Street Band, had it written for them in more than a decade. He does his Broadway show. A fan from Italy hands him an acoustic guitar after one of his shows on Broadway. He takes it home, uh, takes this gift home. It just sits there in a corner. And then one day he picks it up and he ends up writing an entire E Street Band album on that Amazing. guitar. Could you imagine being that fan? Yeah, and I'm sure, it, like like the Len Barker Perfect Game, where fifty thousand people claim they will be there. Now there'll be fifty thousand <laughs> Bruce fans who claim they gave him that guitar. I love that so much. All right, what can we uh, what can we promote uh, for you? What do you what do you got going on? Of course, you got your book, uh, yeah. a fans a fans guide to baseball analytics, uh, available on uh, on Amazon and everywhere they sell books. Right? Yeah, that's a that's a good one. Uh, fans guide to baseball analytics just tries to take the nerdy numbers and, and make them more embraceable and relatable. And you were kind enough to uh, you know to to write a you know review of it uh, that's there on the uh, website. So. Um, yeah, I, I hope because even a lot of your listeners probably even know a lot of the stats in there, but I think it's a great gifty book for, for the casual well, fan. You know what? It, stuff. It's, it's a gifty book, but also no matter how much, you know, uh, about, uh, analytics, it's still a fun, fun read. And, and it does take you in to places where, you know, it's, it's, even if you understand it, you want to think about it and, and you put it in, in, in excellent, uh, in excellent context it's it's terrific it's a fan's guide to baseball analytics and other than that we'll just see you on uh on mlb.com right as, uh, as the playoffs begin that sounds great yeah i'm excited i'm looking forward to it, joe excellent anthony thanks so much for taking the time thank you okay so welcome to the podcast interview we we're very fortunate this week to have uh legendary photographer andrew bernstein with us and uh, we, we got a lot to talk about but first of all andrew uh first welcome and uh you're in the bubble so tell us a little bit about uh where you are and and uh, what your life is like right now well thanks joe thanks marissa for having me um yes i am in the bubble i'm actually in my hotel room here at the beautiful walt disney world resort <laughs> Where we can see the Magic Kingdom, but it's just just out of reach. Out you know? of reach, yes. Um, I've been here, well, as we record this, I've been here about five weeks. And I'm here for the duration, so that could be another three, three and a half weeks to go. Wow, yeah. wow. And yeah. so, so while in the bubble, are you, are you literally shooting every game? I mean, what, what is, what is sort of, where are you, what are you doing? On well, a daily when basis? I, when I got here, um, NBA photos, which, you know, I'm a part of, um, we were having three waves of photographers come through. So there was a group of three or four or five photographers who started actually came before the players came to shoot all the prep work and the setup of the courts and the practice facilities and everything. And then, 
another couple of guys came and a couple of guys left and then myself and uh, the other senior photographer, Nat Butler, we came on August 20th. So we came and we had to do a week of quarantine. And then uh, once we got out of quarantine, um, we, we were there for basically the end of the first round. Okay. Um, so I saw some great games. Um, yeah. I, I just did a stint of 16 games in a row, which is pretty wow. un- unbelievable. But it, it's a much easier uh, workload because everything stays set up in the arena. And we were dealing with two arenas. Now we're down to one arena. Right. So it's not like, you know, a regular conference finals where you're in a city for two, day, two games and you got to install your stuff, pull it out, schlep it to another city, set it up again, <laughs> you know, all that. So it's, it's, it's been a, a little bit... <laughs> bit of a blessing nat and i kind of kick ourselves because you know 15 minutes after game time we're on the bus back to the hotel that's <laughs> that, it that, yeah there's never no... happens <laughs> <laughs> all right so so want to go through your incredible career you are a uh member of the uh, basketball hall of fame as mm-hmm. a photographer winner of the kirk gowdy award which is wonderful and you uh, also have a great podcast uh called legend of sport that we'll talk about in a little bit right so how does someone go about becoming a sports photographer like how how what was your path to this to this crazy life that you ended up leading well I grew up in Brooklyn and uh, I was the shortest kid on my block but I loved sports I grew up in a sports family my family would die hard Brooklyn Dodger fans Um, I actually grew up a Mets fan because I wasn't allowed to be a Yankee fan right in my house once the Dodgers moved which was happened to be the year I was born um and then I was a big Rangers fan growing up. So we played a lot of street hockey, a lot of, you know, football on cement, you know, <laughs> touch, <laughs> touch and tackle football, by the Absolutely. way. Absolutely. Um, but I love sports. And really the way I bonded with my dad was over sports because from when I was eight or nine years old, I went to almost every Rangers home game at the wow. garden um, until I went to college at 17. And so that was our thing, you know, sports was how we bonded and, uh, I started to take up photography at 14 as my dad who actually gave me my first camera and I had a passion for photography and I had a passion for sports and uh, somehow or other those two worlds converged (laughs) and what better way to spend your life and career by doing your passion and enjoying it. No, it's incredible. It's incredible. But, but knowing that you loved photography and knowing that you loved sports, Mm -hmm. How how do you make that happen? I mean, there, there probably are others that do that that yeah. that, that love those things. But mm-hmm. but for you, uh, it led to this to this life. So mm-hmm. was it a pretty direct path? Were you a, a photographer right away? How did that happen? Well, yeah, that's a, a great question. I you know I've talked about it a few times, and every time I talk about it, it seems like it's somebody else's life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> honestly. But but what happened was when when my dad gave me this camera at fourteen, um, and I was in high school. Um, I had a very good friend who had a dark room in his basement and maybe a lot of listeners don't know even what a dark room is or <laughs> yeah, film I is. That's right. You know, film is like a four letter word that starts with F, you know, but, <laughs> um, but he taught my friend, Andrew taught me how to develop film and how to um, most importantly make prints, you know, in the dark room. And when I saw a print come up, I don't know if either of you guys have ever been in a dark room, but when you see the sure. print come up in the solution, and you know that you created that, like that started in your head, you know, and got to your eye and through your eye, went to the camera and onto the film. And now it's appearing before you. It was a, literally a magic trick. I mean, it was, I couldn't believe it. So I knew that that was my path. I knew I, I needed to be a photographer in some way, shape or form. Kind of played around with the idea of being like a photojournalist. I didn't really want to go to war zones, you know, so. <laughs> um, so when it came time to decide on a college, um, 
I decided in University of Massachusetts, so this is kind of a funny story, but back in the day, Marissa, you probably don't even know what I'm talking about here, but back in the day, you would write to the college that you were interested in, or a few of them, and get the college catalog, the course catalog would come, a printed thing, like sure. a phone book, and it would list all the classes, you know, and, and what the prerequisites are and all that stuff. So they had a communications department at UMass, and that's all that I read. There's a communications department. There's got to be photography in there. Didn't quite read the rest of the chapter, you know, <laughs> or the listing. Went to UMass and quickly discovered on the day of enrollment there that uh, they didn't have any photography classes. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> they had classes that talked about, like, photojournalism, but nothing that was practical. So I was a little crestfallen, but... Um, I should have done my homework ahead of time. Anyway, I, I wandered into, and this is a true story, I wandered into the student union where the newspaper was, college paper. We had a, a very prestigious five-day-a-week college newspaper called The Collegian. Sure. And uh, won many, many awards. And anyway, I walked in, and the, the photo editor, this guy, I can see him in my mind's eye right now, this guy, Chris Board, says to me, he says, you a photographer? And I said, uh, yeah. This is the, like the second week of school. You know, I'm 17 <laughs> years old. And he goes, you want to be on my staff? <laughs> I said, yeah, okay. Go out and shoot this. I don't remember what it was. So I went out and I learned the ropes. I learned how to be a photographer on deadline, on assignment, how to, how to you know, get captions and ID information and, and fill the, uh, the hole that was you know, laid out by the, you know, by the designers and everything sure. else. And then, I don't know, by the second month or so, he made me assistant photo editor, which means I started to give out assignments to like juniors and seniors. And I shot everything there. I mean, we had Jimmy Carter come through our campus during his whole presidential, you know, thing, um, campaign and uh, shot all, all the different sports, all the different um, uh, performing arts. And it, it was fascinating. It was great. But it wasn't I wasn't learning like the science, um, the history, uh, the design elements, everything I needed to know, and especially business of photography and so I made a tough decision in my junior year. I transferred to the Art Center College of Design in Pasadena, California, which is still pretty much the number one art and design school in the country. And they had, I did read the catalog, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> they had a photography program, which was really second to none. However, all this being said, it was very advertising, commercial, car, fashion oriented. I mean, I was like literally the black sheep of my class and my wow. friends, my friends and two teachers encouraged me or else I, being a Brooklyn guy, I don't think I would have gotten discouraged to give it up. But, you know, I was told from the beginning that you're never going to make a living doing this. Nobody does this, blah, 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 blah. And I took that as a challenge, you know, and um, one of my mentors, one of my teachers, Bill Robbins, introduced me to a sports illustrated photographer and that got the ball rolling because I started to assist for them. And that's where I learned really on the street, you know, in the arena, um, all the uh, nuts and bolts of, of my business. And then Bill, my teacher, who's still my mentor 40 plus years later, by the way, um, Bill had a studio. So I learned how to run a business by working for Bill, like cleaning his bathroom, taking his dry cleaning. Yeah. You know, but whatever I had to do, but I learned how to deal with vendors. I learned, you know, all the intricacies of running a business, which was, I also wasn't learning at Art Center, unfortunately. They didn't give us classes in that. So, you know, it was a lot of on the job, on the street, you know, in the arena type of training. And uh, just to finish the story, Joe, the, um, you know, this was the beginning of the Showtime, you know, Celtic era. Sure. 
And Sports Illustrated was the only entity that was putting these giant strobes, these big flash units into uh, indoor arenas to shoot primarily hockey and basketball. <clears throat> there were only a few people in the country who knew how to do it. It was yeah. not that difficult, but nobody was doing it. And only Sports Illustrated knew. <clears throat> so I worked for one of the lighting techs who taught me and I, I attained that skill and that helped me open doors at the forum when I was, you know, trying to get my foot in and, and make some inroads. And I was very lucky to be in LA when I was there. Um, as you know, Showtime was taking off. I worked for the Dodgers in 84. I started working for them. Um, so, you know, one thing after the other and, you know, that's where I stayed and that's where I've been for all these years. It's amazing. It's amazing. You know, when I worked at Sports Illustrated, I would always, I loved when, when I could spend time with the, the different photographers there and I would always ask them about this. And I, it mm -hmm. feels to me like, sure. I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of things that you can learn in a classroom uh, about, about any number of things, but it does feel like in order to, to really become a, a great photographer, don't you have to just be out there shooting? Yeah. I mean, isn't that yeah. really where you're going to learn it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I shot every sport you could ever, sports I didn't even know existed, quite mm -hmm. honestly. Um, and I was very, very fortunate, actually. Another really fortuitous thing happened um, towards the end of my time at Art Center. So it had to be around 1980-ish. Uh, yeah, it probably was 1980 because it was for the Olympics. They had the National Sports Festival at the U.S. Tra Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. Sure. So, so my dad happened to live in Colorado Springs at that point. <laughs> And uh, I, I went out, I, I applied for a credential as a student. They gave me one, which is mind blowing, you know, the USOC. And I literally had access to every sport that was going on. So I, for two weeks, I would shoot seven or eight different sports, literally to build my portfolio. Wow. And it was like, I had never shot rhythmic gymnastics. I didn't even know what it was. I mean, right. swimming things, diving, archery, uh, you know, all the stuff that you see in the Olympics. Uh, but it was, it was, you know, kind of honing my craft and, and most importantly was building my portfolio. Yeah. And uh, I'm super thankful to whoever gave me that credential. I, I probably never thanked them, but they, re <laughs> they really helped me. <laughs> yeah. That's incredible. When you're, when you're shooting, you know, I mean, look, you're here, you are doing this in these crazy times in the middle of, of a pandemic in the bubble. But when you're shooting, you said something really interesting earlier about not knowing the history, mm -hmm. how, how much, how much does it matter as a photographer going out just to shoot, you know, go out there and shoot Lakers nuggets, you know, how much, how important is it to sort of understand the history, understand what people have done? I mean, it feels like certainly as a writer, it's hugely important. And I would imagine as a photographer, it is as well. Absolutely. I mean, uh, first of all, you have to know your sport inside and out. You know, I'm, I'm known for basketball, primarily right. NBA basketball, of course. Um, but I've shot a ton of hockey. I've shot a ton of baseball, sure. a ton of football. Um, so, I, I, you know, knowing those sports, growing up with them, being fans of those sports, one thing. But then following the photographers who came before me and even, even my colleagues, the guys I sit next to every night, you know, at Staples Center or on the road or I'm next to it, a football game, whatever, you know, the great photographers, the Mount Rushmore. I mean, Neil Leifer is a friend right. and a mentor of mine. I mean, my yeah. God, it's like saying Ansel Adams, you know, took me out <laughs> to Point Lobos and we shot pictures together. I mean, Neil Leifer, Walter Yost, I mean, yeah. these, these, you know, amazing um, 
and generous. I mean, how generous these guys are with their time and sharing stories and, and coaching. Very early, I would send Neil stuff by mail and he would, he would literally coach me. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, and he didn't know me from anybody. You know, I, I literally wrote him a letter before I was coming home for, for Christmas vacation from Art Center. And he said, yeah, kid, come up to the apartment. We'll chat. And I don't know <laughs> if you know Neil, but he's a little bit one of a kind. And yes. uh, it was it was amazing. So all that being said, yes, I have to be aware of the history. I have to be aware of of the rivalry that's going on. You yeah. know, um, uh, you know, Lakers and Denver right now have history together. You know, yes. I go back to the Alex English, Kareem, you know, fat lever magic days. And right. then of course, Carmelo, you know, Anthony was there when Kobe was there. So there's history between these teams. It's not really talked about right now, but we're talking about it on our Legends of Sport uh, platform. And now you and I are talking about it. Absolutely. Of us. Um, but it's also important to know, for example, you know, it seems like every game LeBron is setting some record of something, yes. you know, most playoff games played, most points. You know. So I have to be super aware of that. And I have to rely on people around me, the PR people, the rest of our photo team to really be in tune with all that stuff. Yeah. What is, what is a successful day for you? I mean, you know, when, uh, when you come away, is it, you know, wh what are you thinking about as you're out there shooting? Is it, I, I want to capture the most important, most significant, most uh, telling, most exciting moment of the day. I mm -hmm. want to be able to have that so that people can look at that photo and, and see and feel what that's like. I mean, is that is it about a moment? Is it about, hey, I'm just as many great photos as I can get out of this and we'll get the best one. I mean, what, what is sort of your mindset when you go into shooting something like this? Well, we, we have a different sort of um, uh, priority list than, than your average, you know, photojournalist, somebody who's there for a newspaper or a wire service sure. or a Getty. Um, we have to get those photos, those same action photos. You know, I got to get Anthony Davis's game winner, God yes. willing, I'll get it. And I did get it the other night um, and the key matchups, but, but there's a laundry list of stuff that we have to shoot all the elements around, especially this bubble situation um, that make it unique. Uh, the announcers, um, the shoes, the guys are wearing the clothes that they're wearing when they come in. That's now a huge priority for us is shooting the arrivals um, and what they're wearing and, and the social justice messages sure. on the court and the, what the players are doing. Um, there are families there. Uh, there's a lot of back of the house stuff going on. So it's, it's a big shot list. Yeah. <laughs> we, you know, it's not the four of us who are here now are the most senior guys. So we kind of know it innately, but you know, every game I'm being fed. Hey, um, the other night, for example, uh, James Worthy happened to be a virtual fan. Now I wouldn't have known that, but it's important that our, you know, the person who's helping us on the photo side tells us that. So he tells the three of us who are shooting and we make sure we get a shot of that because somebody along the line, you know, at the NBA requested that. Yeah. So all that stuff is part of the deal as part of um, our average day. Um, and when I come back from a game, uh, you know, if there was a game winning shot and I got it, I feel like I accomplished something. If, if there was a, um, you know, a monumental dunk, um, which, you know, Alex Caruso gave us this ridiculous dunk the other <laughs> right, night, happened right. to be right in front of me, which was wonderful. And conversely, I must say that if uh, something happens and I don't get it, I probably dwell on that much, much longer than if I did get it. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. 
the thing yeah. that's, you know, I always think about as a writer, I always think about, you know, being, because obviously I've spent my entire career with photographers and, and we're there at the same place and we're trying to complement each other and we're trying to tell the same story, but in different ways. And we're trying to tell different stories, all these things. Mm -hmm. And I've always thought as a writer, obviously there are challenges that are different, but as a photographer, you get one shot. And I just think that's, that's so different. I mean, I, I was, I actually had this thought when, when Bam had that block mm -hmm. the other day yeah. is that, that there was going to be a best photo of that. Right. Yeah. And everybody yeah. else was going to be just second, or we're going to have missed it entirely as a yeah. writer. You can, you know, you can say, Hey, this guy wrote about it better than I did, but I had the same chance that they did. Mm -hmm. But for you, it's angle, it's timing, it's, mm -hmm. you know, where you happen to be on the floor. I mean, Mm -hmm. so many variables right yeah for sure i mean look we could get blocked and now being off the court it's actually a little bit better because we don't get blocked as much as being right there on the court with a referee in your way or you know another player especially with a game-winning shot situation um but uh you know that block i wasn't at that game but right you know our three guys nailed that I mean that, and that's what we're there for. That's you know that's why yeah. they're that's why they're bringing us down here. So we better get that, unless there's some crazy circumstance when we don't. Um, but like I go back to I think it was in the first round or something or second round where James Harden had that block. I think against yes. somebody on OKC was it? I think or, that's right. And it was right in front of me. And at that point, I was I was shooting with a motor drive, and the the moment that his fingers touched the ball was in between frames if you can believe it the thing is shooting six frames in a second wow so i look at i look at you know the sequence and i'm like damn <laughs> you know and that's the kind of thing i kick myself it's not, it's not really my fault not your I fault got it but i didn't get the fingers on the ball and it just killed me you know <laughs> but when you said earlier joe what you said about um you really i really get one shot i mean I hope you know what that really means in my world, because most of the time we're shooting with these strobes, yeah. these giant flashes, and you see them on the replays and you see them in, during the course of the game, if you're watching TV. Um, and that means we can shoot one picture every four seconds, because it takes four seconds for those strobes to recycle back up. Wow. So it's not like I can lean on a motor drive. I happen to be shooting available light in that hardened situation, but 95% of the time I'm shooting with, with the strokes. Right. So the Anthony Davis game winner, one shot. It wasn't a sequence. And you did see other photographers did have the sequence, the ball about to leave his hand, leaving his hand, the high arc, you know, the whole thing, which is wonderful. You know, that's great. But I got to time that just right. And that was actually reminded me very much of Derek Fisher's 0 0.4. Uh -huh. Almost in the same exact spot that Derek shot. <laughs> and... I know at that point, our, our uh, priority um, has been drilled into us since Michael Jordan's, you know, um, game winner in the, uh, what was it? The 98 the Utah. finals. Yeah. yeah. Um, that we have to, if the game winning shot is on the other side from where you're sitting, where you're shooting from, you have to shoot very wide from uh, sideline to sideline, show the clock, you know, cause you gotta have the clock in there. Wow. So it's a very wide shot, obviously, but it tells the story because you see, I think there's 1.2 seconds left when he shot it on the clock. So amazing. Yeah. Well, I've, I've always been fascinated by it because I like, I always, one of my favorite things about the famous Ali uh, uh, Liston yes. photo, right? Where yeah. Ali uh -huh. is standing over Liston 
is if you look through Ali's legs, you see photographers who are blocked out. They're on the wrong side of the of the of the. Uh, oh, that's a, that's a great story about that joke. Do you want me to tell it? <laughs> yes, of course. Okay. All right. Well, bear with me because uh, how much time you got? No. Um, <laughs> so, so this the Ali over Liston shot literally and voted to be the most iconic sports photo ever taken by yeah. the great Neil Lifer in 1964. You know, blah blah blah. So Neil is a young whippersnapper photographer. Um, who is just making his mark at Sports Illustrated. Sports Illustrated would always send two photographers to a major fight, right? And the way they do it at fights, they still do it, is that, is that the uh, PR person puts a card. It's like, you know, if you're a writer, you go and you, you know where your sure. seat is because it has your name on it. And, right. and there's a card placed um, around the ring where your spot is. And uh, Neil didn't like his spot. So Neil got there early and Neil switched cards with the other <laughs> photographer. And lo and behold, who's in between Ali's legs was the other photographer. The other photographer. Yeah, Herb Sharfman, who is one of the greatest photojournalists of, of literally of all time on the original staff of Sports Illustrated. So fast forward, fast forward. I get the Dodger job at 84. I'm this young whippersnapper, like, like Neil was, I guess. I go down to Vero Beach. The first day I'm there, who do I meet? Herb Sharfman. <laughs> Herb Sharfman was retired by that point. He's in his 70s. And he was very good friends with the O'Malley family. And they invited him. They, he and his wife, Henny, had moved to Florida. And they invited uh, Herb and his wife every year to go to Dodgertown. No, no, all expenses paid, you know, free ride because he was, he was such a, an institution, you know, in New York. Sure. And, and Walter O'Malley passed that on to Peter O'Malley. <laughs> so I, I meet Herb and, you know, he gives me the eyeball, but he kind of took me under his wing. And one of our first conversations was my relationship with Neil. <laughs> you know, that <laughs> what I told you earlier that, you know, Neil sort of mentored me at the beginning of my career and he, he, <laughs> he just went off on me. <laughs> Don't ever mention that, you know, what name to me. I ruined my career. <laughs> poor, poor Herb. I mean, Herb had, you know, I don't know if he ever won a Pulitzer, but he was at that level. You know? Wow. So anyway, that's the long story. Yes, love of, it. Of that photo. But look, you know, you make your own opportunities. You know, Walter sure. Yost talks about luck in our business. You know, you were lucky to get that shot. No, not really. Right. I mean, we prepared for that shot. Walter prepared for the, the Dwight Clark catch mm -hmm. because he was the only photographer smart enough to go in the end zone to get that picture. Yeah. Every other photographer got it from the sideline. It was a nice picture, but he was he got the picture. Yes, yeah. exactly. And you know why he got it? Because he had watched Montana and Clark run that play 50 times in practice. Wow. <laughs> because he was covering the Niners in those days. He was doing this behind the scenes thing. So he knew. He knew in that situation, they're going to go long and they're going to go to the end zone. So that's where he had to go. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. All right. I want to talk about your podcast before I yeah. do want it. One last question on, on photography in general. And that is talk a little bit about, if you would, what photography means today, because, you know, mm. for instance, you talk about the Anthony Davis shot, how great that was. Mm -hmm. um, obviously you can see it, right? You can, you can go to NBA.com and watch it. You can watch the, you can watch it again and again and again, as many times as you like. So what is it that a great photo does that that seeing the replay from as many different angles as they have can't quite capture? 
Well, the first thing, a great photo, no matter what it is. I mean, it could be a picture of a flower. It could be a sure. game-winning shot. It could be uh, something shot in war or whatever, a political photo. It has to elicit a response. You know, yeah. just like when you write, you know, it has, you have to get a response back from the viewer or the listener or um, whoever it happens to be receiving your work. So mission accomplished if somebody responds to it emotionally in some way. Yes. And then if it has a significance to it, you know, game winning shot, obviously, you know, won the game in the conference finals. That's a, that's an important thing. Um, so th those, those are really my goals. You know, if I, if I can, if I can make you happy uh, and that you can look at that picture and you had just seen it on TV and now you're seeing it on your phone because literally in seconds it was, it was tweeted out. Wow. Because my cameras, and this is a whole other discussion, but different than back in the day, but all of my cameras are tethered. So as I shoot with the camera in my hand or remote cameras, the, the images are being transmitted to an editor in New Jersey who's receiving them in real time, like literally seconds in later. real time, wow. And doing a very quick caption, shooting it off to Getty Images, and Getty puts it out there, and uh, NBA social media gets it at the same time. So before... I would say before um, before Anthony did his uh, post game press conference, uh, post game thing on the court, you know, sure. that that photo was already out. Amazing, <laughs> just amazing. <laughs> Which you know, good thing I got it. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> that's it would true. Be, be a blank screen. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think there's a there's an emotional attachment to seeing it the moment stopped. Mm -hmm. compared to seeing it now not to say it isn't emotional to watch the Anthony sure. Davis they shot of course it is yeah it's just a different kind of emotion when you can see it absolutely that that split second when it happened I I just and that is yeah. true yeah I'm not just in sports but I think in sports particularly mm -hmm. seeing the Dwight Clark photo that Walter Yost or seeing the the Ali uh standing over or you know dozens mm -hmm. of others the Bobby Orr photo I mean the, I can yeah. go through all yeah. the classics there's an emotion there that is different from watching the actual event, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's a cliche, but it's truly a moment in time. I mean, yeah. it's a moment captured. And I mean, you can, we could sit here for two hours and talk about the great the news great photos. And, of course. You know, everything that you and I have seen growing up and, and, and even, you know, to this day that, that mean that, that are significant. Oh, and yeah. it's, it's a moment captured. It's a moment in time. You never get it back. There's no do-overs in, in my business. No, know? it's like, well, hold on, Anthony, take that shot again. Missed it. You know, can't do that. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So tell me about the, about the podcast legend of sports. Yeah. Thanks Joe for asking. Um, so a number of years ago, um, a couple of friends of mine who are in different, areas of the sports business, uh, but they're very, very close friends of mine. We, we developed this idea of a platform called Legends of Sport, which really celebrates, perpetuates, documents um, uh, famous and, and momentous moments, teams, players, um, uh, personalities in sports, even venues, you know. So it, it kind of transcends halls of fame. You know, our, mm -hmm. our view is that, that um, you know, you're going to go into the hall of fame in whatever sport you're in. And that's wonderful. But then there's another level to attain, yeah. which is to be a le true legend of sport. You know, I once had a conversation with Kobe as, as we were developing this and he was actually helping me kind of form the idea. And I said, you know, Kobe, where, where have you ever been in the same room with like Mario Andretti and Bjorn Borg and, and uh, you know, Martina Navratilova, right. and Cal Ripken and, you know, 
And he says, oh, you know, maybe backstage at the ESPYs once a year. You know, I said, well, wouldn't it be nice if you guys had your own club? <laughs> you know, like, and think about, you know, how that could be marketed, you know, as legends uh, truly across the board of sport. And, yes. and not just in sports. I mean, like Sylvester Stallone and what he accomplished with Rocky and the other movies that he's done. Of course. He's a true legend of sport. Sure. And there are teams and there are teams. And, you know, a lot of this is, is also born out of the fact that I have friends in the business, as you do, who have struggled post-retirement. Um, there are mental health issues, there are financial issues. Um, we want to find a way to help them. We want to make them marketable again. We want to make them relevant again. We want to bring the spotlight back, you know. Yeah. So I started the podcast as really the launching point, and that was three years ago. We're just about to do our 100th podcast, but awesome. believe it or not. We're now partnered with the LA Times. Uh, we are co-produced and distributed by the LA Times now in our third season. And in addition to doing the audio podcast once a week, we release the full podcast on video. So oh, yeah, people can either get it, you know, from Apple or Spotify or on the LA Times app, um, or they can get the, the video version from YouTube. And then we're also putting one minute snips on Instagram throughout the week. So it's been a lot of fun. I mean, this, this uh, as we release this, my good friend, Jack McCallum, who I'm sure you know. I know Jack well. Yes. yes. So he, he's my guest this week. We're talking about the Dream Team and, awesome. and our history together. Last week, we had Steve Kerr. Um, you know, we've had, uh, this, this season has been amazing. I've had Sue Bird, Kevin Love. We oh, have a few great. other people in, in the hopper here waiting to, uh, ready to jump out after this thing is over. So, and then another part of what we're doing doing a legend of sport our our events we're going to start doing events virtually um around teams around moments memories uh what have you so um there's a lot of things that that we really are pushing forward on and being here in the bubble quite honestly has been very helpful to me to sort of you know i know when i have to work right my mba hat on but then i have you know the whole rest of the day to talk to you or yeah. to do zoom calls with my partners or with our video team or whoever, um, with my producer who's in LA, who's, you know, knocking on a lot of doors trying to get guests for us. Sure. So, um, so it's been, it's been a blast. And I, I really, I just love getting people's stories. I, you know, I talked to Steve Ballmer, for example, we haven't released him yet, but you know, just where he started, like how did Steve Ballmer right. become Steve Ballmer, you know, and everybody has that story. You know, I'll give you a quick one. Um, Peter Goober, the great Peter Goober, right? Owner of the Dodgers, owner of the Warriors, one of the most successful guys in, in Hollywood history, right? In entertainment. He was a Red Sox fan growing up in Boston and couldn't even afford a ticket as a kid to go into Fenway Park to even sit, you know, in the bleachers. Right. So he would, he would stand out in Yawkey Way waiting for home runs to be hit over <laughs> the green monster. Yeah. And this is how he started in sports, you know? <laughs> I, I love that stuff. It's awesome. Because we, we, you know, you and I, we all started somewhere. And sure. our love was, and that was the first, your first question. You know, where did my love for sports come from? Absolutely. That's wonderful. Yeah. That's wonderful. So that's Legend of Sport. It's available everywhere the podcasts are available. Jack McCallum, by the way, a true legend of sport, mm -hmm. by the way, that you, you couldn't have done better. Yeah, he's Jack's the best, the absolute yeah. best. So this is terrific. So thank you, Andrew, uh, for taking the time. This is wonderful. And uh, we'll see you when you get out of the bubble, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I'm counting the days down here, but it's it's been it's been really interesting. I mean, to be part of it's this been a great playoffs. It really yeah, has. Yeah, and this experience, I mean, you know, God willing we'll never have to live through this again. And the way the NBA honestly has has produced this and kept everybody safe and healthy is 
is just mind blowing to me. It really is. It's been yeah. it's it's been incredible, and the and the the games have been incredible. I mean, really, yeah. it, it's just been yeah. wonderful. So excellent, yeah. Andrew. So thank you so much. All right, Joe. Thanks so much, man. Take care.